You are listening to The History of Religions and, of course, Dear Gods, hosted by yours truly, the skeptical ghost heathen. Aw, oh, man, you're definitely going to need some extra-strength lube and a headlamp for this one, baby. Hello, heathens and history buffs. Welcome back to my big little show, The History of Religions and, of course, Their Gods. Now, let me ask you, where did you guys feel that one? Did I tickle your taints? As I'm moving my two little fingers together. Now, seriously, though, but thank you for joining me again on this journey, and today we are on our fifth episode of this series. And this one I'm calling, The Name That Should Not Be Spoken. Now, this, of course is referring to the Tetragrammaton YHWH, what Christians refer to as Yahweh. Now in this episode, we're going to piece together how this unspoken name, how it came to be, which will also help us identify who this mystery king was, who, he, who established this treaty or this covenant between this kingdom and a nomadic tribe that was occupying the hilly country of Canaan. So if you're ready to do this thing, guys, and have already listened to the first four episodes, please go back and make sure you did, then let's hop into our little time buggies. Let's go find the guy whose name we're not allowed to say. And remember, if it's not funny, if it's not educational, and above all, blasphemous, then why even bother? one comes to consider the idea that Abraham, Sarah, and this Mesopotamian king, Baal Barith, had a child named Isaac out of a contract, out of treaty, out of an agreement, or the covenant, and that the memory of this Lord was ultimately elevated to the rank of deity, being El Barith. Now, one naturally would start wondering, well, what happened to the mother Sarah, the consort of the king, or Abraham's wife. Now we know that in the eyes of the Canaanites, the goddess Asherah was the consort of Baal, and the mother goddess of all of Israel. So with what we've learned so far in the last four episodes, can a connection be established between Asherah and Abraham's Sarah? Was the memory of Isaac's mother also elevated to the rank of deity after her death. Now, from an etymological standpoint, the only difference between the names Asherah and Sarah is the Aleph, that small little curse of X that assumes a leading position in the name of a goddess. Now, what do we know of this letter, and where does it come from? 
But before we can do that, we need to take a little history lesson here. Because the precursor to the modern alphabet that we use today was invented by a Semitic people who worked in the turquoise mines of Cerebit. Then a Sir William Matthew Flinders Petrie, say that ten times fast, well, this guy is an Egyptologist who led an archaeological expedition in this region of Cerebit in 1905. And it was this guy who discovered there a stone sphinx with some strange Egyptian hieroglyphs on it. And later on, it was found that these symbols were not all hieroglyphs at all. Now, unlike cuneiform, which is made up of an assortment of straight lines, if you would, well, these inscriptions, they express letters through symbols that would later be referred to as proto -Cineatic. Now, the sphinx, kind of like a small Rosetta Stone, if you would, well, it spelled out a simple inscription in both Egyptian and Canaanite. And the hieroglyphic inscription reads as follows. Beloved of Hathar, Lady of the Turquoise. While their proto cineic inscription simply reads, Ba'alat, or, simply put, Lady. The feminine construct, equivalent to the masculine, Ba'al. Now, the Cerebit Sphinx here, it suggests that this alphabet was born through proximity to Egyptian pictograms. We kind of can imagine what they look like. We've all seen them, right? The Egyptian hieroglyphics. Now, the meaning of the pictograms, it was key. It was important to Canaanites. Because these symbols, these letters, they served as an important mnemonic tool. For instance, the letter Aleph is the Alp, the word that would be used for ox or a bull, for that matter. And the letter B-E-T, the letter bet, is the bet, or the word or the symbol that would use, be used to represent a house. Or the letter I-N, which would represent or symbolize the I. So on and so forth. Now get this. The very word itself, alphabet, comes from Aleph Bet. The first two letters which eventually became to be called Alpha, beta. Alpha, beta in Greek. Now, this proto-Sianitic alphabet predated modern Hebrew as well as Aramaic by more than a thousand years, guys. The number and the names of the letters have been somewhat preserved, but their associated pictograms have evolved. Now, meanwhile, in Egypt, the falcon head pictogram, guys. You all know what it looks like because it was commonly used to represent Horus the Egyptian Horus, who was basically the god of the kings, right? Now, this symbol would often accompany the name of the pharaoh right along with it, just like the Akkadian practice with the dinger. The Akkadian dinger is basically, it's a symbol that looks like a windmill, an old-fashioned windmill with a few blades missing on it. But this symbol would precede the name of the Babylonian god, or the deified ancestor, in order to indicate his divine status. Now, the question we need to ask here is, were the Canaanites also using similar pictograms in order to represent their king or their god Baal? Well, it appears that in Genesis 36, guys, it contains the remnants of such a practice. So in this episode, we're going to discuss Esau's genealogy, which just happens to be the most detailed of any in all of Genesis. And we will learn that the descendants of Esau are referred to as Aleph.
which is most often translated to duke or chief in English. So let's take a look at a couple of these. Genesis 36:40. And these are the names of the Aleph's that came of Esau, according to their families, after their places, by their names. Aleph Timnah, Aleph Avah, Aleph Jetheth. And then in Genesis 36:41 it continues, Aleph Aholabama, Aleph Ela, Aleph Pinan. Genesis 36.42 continues, Elaf Henaz, Elaf Timon, Elaf Mibzar. Then one more, Genesis 36.43, Elaf Magadil, Elaf Aram. These be the Elafs of Edom, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Now the term Aleph here, it is closely related to the Aleph. The name of the Hebrew letter, which I told you looks like a small cursive X, which represents a divine status, such as a god, a goddess, or a deity. And this Aleph derives from an ox's head, an image of an ox's head, that is. And its numerical value is, get this, number one. Now not only is it the first letter of the alphabet, but it's also the most important letter, because it is the symbol for God, the only God and the most absolute God. So there can be no doubt, then, that this has always been a term associated with power and uniqueness. So is it then pure coincidence if, to this day, the title Aleph still refers to the highest-ranking official in the Israelite army? Now, with the understanding that the symbols that make up the Hebrew word for Aleph, which again is used for and reserved for people of higher stature, such as people working at the temple cult, and the symbol used to indicate divinity, are only off by one tiny little letter. And it's what we would say looks like our capital I. Now, in the first word, the symbols are beginning with the Aleph, which is a small little cursive-looking X, followed by a kind of a sickle-looking thing. And then what looks like to be a hangman's post that you would draw on a piece of paper when you play the game. Now, the second word for someone with divine, godlike stature, it's exactly the same letter per letter, with only one missing thing. That is the straight, up-and-down, little insignificant letter that we would say looks like the I. Now, with that said, and given the close ties between Canaan, Egypt, and Babylonia, it would therefore suggest that the Canaanites would have used the pictogram of the bullhead, which just looks like an upside-down capital letter A, as a symbol for representing their deified kin. And the function of this symbol would eventually be conflated with the letter that it was also representing through the adoption and evolution of the Proto-Sinaitic alphabet. Now this pictogram, it evolved into the Greek letter A, which is now represented by a, what? A sideways bull's head, or the modern capital A as an upside-down bull's head. 
So are Sarah here in her quality of being the mother of Isaac and, of course, the stepmother of Ishmael. Sarah would have been referred to as Elif, someone with authority, someone special. Or more specifically, folks, Baal-a-lot or Baal-a-lah, which is basically the feminine form of Baal. That signifies that she is a princess or a consort. And as such, the name Sarah in Proto-Sinietic would have been preceded by an image of the bullhead. A bullhead pictogram to be exact. So what was once meant to be pronounced as Alaf Sarah would have eventually been translated into Asherah. Because the names are spelled exactly the same way. Asherah just has the Aleph preceding her name, which is the small little X proclaiming and identifying her as divine. So now we have Aleph Sarah, who would be the revered matriarch of all the Jews, who would evolve into Asherah, or the mother goddess of all of Israel. And then ultimately, she would come to be revered as the queen mother of heaven and sometime in the 18th century BCE. And through syncretism after her death, she would have been closely related to, and associated with, and perhaps even conflated with, the Babylonian goddesses Astarte and Ishtar. Now, she would have inherited much of their qualities, their attributes and their roles, in much of the same way that Baal Barith became associated with Baal, the god Baal, and finally El the supreme god of all of Canaan, the supreme god of the Levant, and sometime after his death. And finally, and in light of the use of the title Aleph, being somebody of supreme status, as seen in Genesis 36, well, now one may wonder if the couple's descendants did not also become regarded as members of the divine assembly. Remember we talked about that before? A survey of possible ties linking the names of these Alephs, or lesser gods of the Levant, would be very interesting to do, would it not? Now, according to author and scholar Bernard Lambarell, my pal, well, he said to me, it took me years to find out, it took me years to clue in on the fact that Asherah had to be the deified Sarah or Sarai, of course, being her maiden name before the powerful overlord made her change it. Now, Bernard was also stunned to find out that Old Testament scholar, Devorah Letterman Danley, she came to the same exact conclusion in her recent monograph entitled, Sarai, is she the goddess of ancient Israel? And what was even more surprising was the fact that this is the very first time that a biblical scholar suggests that Sarai had a relationship with Yahweh as well. Now, this is not just outside of mainstream scholarship, guys. It's literally groundbreaking, and in every way imaginable. Because when she discusses the Abrahamic narratives, well, Danley argues that these passages are stories that depict a divine rather than human couple, and the consorts are not Abram and Sarai, but Sarai and Yahweh. But what I do find most interesting, folks, is that she reaches this conclusion using radically different evidence and interpretations to get to it. 
For instance, she doesn't rely on a secular interpretation of the story like we do, and does not even consider the possibility of deification after death. Even though Israel's neighbors were practicing it for over a thousand years. And instead, she relies on what she refers to as mythological fragments that she sees in chapters 12, 18, and 20 of Genesis. And she suggests that these fragments would have been inserted via syncretism and associations of the names Sarai and Asherah. Now, what's important here is that the same conclusion has been reached independently by a biblical scholar who did not even revert to the premise of a deified overlord. And this lends some substantial credence to the work of Yahweh as a deified king. And in support of her claim, she brings up some powerful textual arguments that totally escaped most scholars. For instance, she explains that the word letzahek, as it found in Genesis 18.13, does not only refer to laughter or mockery, but it also implies a flirtatious or romantic sense. And in her book, she notes that in Genesis 26.8, when King Abimelech hears the laughter between Isaac and Rebekah, he realizes they are lovers and not brother and sister, as Isaac had claimed. Now she also notes in Genesis 39.17 that Potiphar's wife also uses the word letzahek in the sense of lying with me. And therefore she concludes that in some cases the book of Genesis uses the word letzahek to mean sexual flirtation and seduction. And then she proceeds to offer up some examples of some Canaanite narratives where Asherah and Sarai share analogous roles together and are described in similar ways. But interestingly enough, she never comments on that possible meaning of the leading Aleph, that small little cursive X in Asherah's name, that divine symbol. But instead she focuses on the similitudes and compares the meaning of the two names. But she just doesn't go the next step. And then finally, she explores the possible use of a figure called Sarai as a superhuman being in the Book of Lamentations, as well as a reference in Isaiah that associates Sarah with giving birth to nations, which is true, but in a way that also carries some supernatural power. But all these arguments supplement the ones that we have offered so far in the past four episodes. But unfortunately, by failing to recognize that Sarai was more than simply associated with Asherah, rather that she was Asherah in her deified version. Danley missed out on an important aspect of the potential truth. Now, Letterman Danley, well, she nevertheless continues to show some super amazing insights to our study here, because she argues that the oldest name for God might just be referring to Sarai, and L together as a compound deity. Two gods for the price of one. Just kidding. But first she recalls Lutsky's view on the names comprised from compound deities, which is also very similar to what Mark Smith suggests. Because in West Semitic pantheons, the commonly found compound names of two gods, they often, almost always, share a temple together. And they have features that are in common, or have been consorts. Now, in the Ugaritic pantheon, the names will say God X and God Y 
joined by the symbol that would represent and, which would basically just evolve into God X and Y, but perceived as a singular unit. Not God A and God B, but a singular unit, a compound deity, which we find all up and down the Levant. Now, which would then become simply X, Y, by dropping the meaningless and. And then therefore, this is a cultural religious possibility of a syncretic combination of the two heads of the pantheon, being the goddess and the god, and into one united name. Now, Lutsky recalls that back in 1923, Maurice Canny had already argued that Shaddai, as in El Shaddai, which is how God presented himself to the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, who are so closely related to Shemesh, where the Shaddai gods were there in inscription as fertility deities. But also, Maurice Canny suggests that El Shaddai, or Shaddai, was a fertility deity whose name was closely linked and related to the Hebrew word sad, which just means breast. As if you recall, we talked about it in Genesis 49, 25-26, with an added I as a feminine ending. An old feminine ending, that is. But in her study, she takes Canny's study step even further, and she argues that Shaddai might actually refer to Asherah. Now, for Lutsky, it follows naturally that El Shaddai actually refers to El and Asherah. Now, isn't that cool? Try explaining that to your pastor. Now, the statement, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, as seen in Exodus 4, verse 3, that may therefore inadvertently reveal in disguised form, of course, a faithful image of the religion of early Israel in its earliest forms, namely the worship of El and Shaddai, or respectively, El and Asherah. Now, Lederman Danley, she then takes Lutsky's argument just one step further again. She argues that Shaddai actually cognates with the name Sarai, through a confusion between the Hebrew letters R and D, which are virtually identical. And in certain cases, we maintain that from a paleographical standpoint of view, there's no difference in ancient inscriptions between the R and D, depending on the copy's decision or attention to the script. Because when you look at the Hebrew R and the Hebrew D, the Hebrew R, if you picture that hangman post again, where the top of it only hangs to the left, or just picture a T with the right side of it missing. Where the D is the same thing, except that there's a tiny little tail of the T on the right-hand side. So if you're not really paying attention, it would be easy to miss. And it's just left to the discretion of the scriptwriter. Now, Lederman Danley, she does not say whether she thinks that such the substitution was accidental or perhaps even intentional, such as the desire to hide something using a play on words. But what she does say, well, she offers up a number of additional arguments to support her claim, and we're not going to be able to cover all of them today. But it suffice to say that in light of everything else that we discussed so far in five episodes, the case for Shaddai being associated with Asherah or Sarai is pretty appealing in every way that we look at it. 
Now, please recall the Merneptus Deli that we talked about in the first couple of episodes of the show, which contains the first known inscriptions bearing the name Israel that dates from the 13th century BCE and just a few generations down from the Ugaritic literature discussed earlier. Now, there's therefore no doubt that the El, Baal, and Asherah deities were still very popular as far back as the 16th or even 18th century BCE. And according to the Hebrew Bible, well, Jacob fought with God and then was given the name Israel. Now, remember that passage where a strange anthropomorphic God wrestles with Jacob. I always made fun of that verse until now. And there has been countless speculation on the origins of this name. And Lederman Danley, still building on Letsky, offers a suggestion that aligns with the rest of the information uncovered by Bernard Lumberell. And basically, he says, if Shaddai was an originally Sarai, then the original ancient syncretic combination was not El Shaddai after all, but rather El Sarai. Now, this testimony is embedded in the DNA of the ancient nation who worshipped the gods El and Sarai in a way that could not ever be erased in history. This testimony is the eternal name of the people called Israel. Okay, guys. You ready for this to get sticky? Ladies, you want this to get slippery? Because Lederman Danley, she argues that the name Israel, Israel itself, is no other than Sarai El. And that this, in quotation, combination became through typical process for theophoric names such as El Yakim, translating into Yakim Maihu whereas Israel is Sarai-El, or better stated, Israel. Now, through the process of removing a single character from the name, Sarah and El, El being the divine manifestation of Baal-Bereth, of course, we ultimately have the single word that would represent them as one singular being, Yisrael spelled Y-I-S-R-A-E-L, Yisrael. Go tell that to your preacher. Now, it's particularly interesting to consider this possibility, especially in the light of the ancient tradition of matrilineal descent and Judaism. Now, what is that, guys? It's basically where a child is considered Jewish, if born to a Jewish mother. Regardless of whoever the father is, this does not matter. Now, indeed, this tradition should reflect Sarah's bloodline contribution to the birth of the promised son and her unique relationship with this overlord, our mystery king. Now, let's dig in a little bit deeper, but this time not into the balls, guys. We're going to leave my balls alone for now. But now we're going to dig in a little bit deeper into that Yahweh name. Dig in a little bit deeper into the Yahweh. But the names Yahweh and Jehovah, well, what are they? You've heard them both. And perhaps it's only Jehovah's Witness that you ever heard the name Jehovah before. But they are basically transliterations of the original Tetragrammaton YH. 
WH, which you've all seen and heard a thousand times. And basically, it is found in the Torah. Now, nobody knows for sure where the name YHWH originates from or how it should even be pronounced. Nobody knows. But over the last few decades, there has been growing acceptance among biblical scholars that it more than likely came from a late Bronze Age name place called Yahu, located in Judea, of course. Now, Grabe explains some Egyptian inscriptions of late Bronze Age mention what may be a geographical name, YHWH, with a reference to the land of the Shazu Yahu. Now, although the name YHW seems to be geographical, it is possible that there is a connection with the divinity, YHWH, as mentioned in the Torah, perhaps the region given its name to the god that was worshipped there, or even possibly the deity given its name to the region. However, arguments have been advanced from several quarters that YHWH arose out of the context of El worship there. However, this does not rule out a geographical origin, since the two theories could be combined together. But it illustrates the difficulties that are ahead of us. Grabe then describes the chicken or the egg dilemma when seeking to understand the origin of Yahweh. Because the total absence of any archaeological evidence, it should leave us doubtful. However, we have to ask ourselves, how did a local obscure deity, for which there's not a single trace of worship to, come to replace the national gods of Canaan, a metropolis of two major city ports, economic hubs, now, some believers, including most of my running friends, well, they're probably tempted to see this as a sign of his legitimacy in his unlikely realization. But the total absence of archaeological evidence truly leaves the question unsettled to me. And that's why, guys, we have to keep digging, especially as this religion is trying once again to corrupt our legal system. Oy vey. But... The one way of testing out a hypothesis is through its ability to make predictions, right? So, so far, we've argued that the Baal and the Elbereth deity is not only tied to the development of the ancient Israelite religion, but it is also intimately tied to the story of the patriarchs and Shechem. We have also argued that Baal and El, which is Lord and deity, evolved to become Yahweh, or slash L-E-M, and that Baal slash Elbereth is Lord, God of the Covenant, that becomes an epithet for the ultimate name Yahweh. Now with that said, shouldn't we naturally expect that the name Yahweh somehow also evolved from this conventional relationship? Now, how could we validate such a prediction? How do we do that? Well, for starters, Akkadian is a Semitic language, and it shares many similarities with Hebrew. Also, remember that there's a number of biblical scholars that we talked about who also suggest that chapter 14 of Genesis is an Akkadian origin. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And as the cuneiform script does not delineate words with spaces, 
like ancient Hebrew does, well, guys, it opens the door to additional interpretations, which could explain some of the more difficult passages that we find in the Abrahamic narratives in Genesis. Now, guys, you need to pay attention to this one because it's going to get a little bit wet here, get a little sticky. Because the idea that the original covenant was probably written in Akkadian should not come as a total surprise in the context of an earthly covenant, an earthly covenant made with the Mesopotamian overlord. Because Akkadian was the most used language at this time. It was also commonly used in diplomatic correspondences, agreements, treaties, just like English is today. So in this context, guys, it would not have only been normal, but expected of Abraham that he refers to this Mesopotamian lord as Beliah. Beliah, which simply means my lord in Akkadian. Now in a reassessment of the biblical LOM, we have another scholar by the name of Burnett. And Burnett suggests that the morphologically plural term LOM, which means gods, being used as a singular, in place of the singular, Eloah, which is God, it likely finds its origins in several late Bronze Age documents from Syria, Palestine. And it's there that Burnett makes a case for what he likes to call concretized abstract plural. And he cites the Armana letters and vassal correspondence of the 14th century BCE, where the plural terms Ilanu is used for gods and Ilaniya for my gods. And they were used as a form of plural of majesty whenever addressing the pharaoh. Now these correspondences, they were all written in the Akkadian language and then drafted onto clay tablets using a cuneiform script. And these cuneiform scripts, they remained in use all the way through the Babylonian as well as the Assyrian empires. And additionally, in the cited Armana letters, the following expressions are found, and I will do my best to translate them from Akkadian into English. They go like this. Sarai. Belaya, Samsiya, Iliania, which is translated to the king, my lord, my son god, my gods. Then we have another one that says Ana, Sarai, Belaya, Elia, Samsiya, which translates into the king, my lord. My God, my God's son. Then finally, we have Belu, Ilanu, Napastaka, Isur, which is, may the Lord God's protect your life. Now let's break this down a little bit. Let's think about it. Because given the terms that we have, Yahweh and Elohim, and that they are so intimately related to each other, and because they both refer to the one God of Israel. And then given the fact that the Akkadian sources are giving us insights on the 
possible origins of the peculiar use of the plural term LOM to refer to a singular majesty. Then, guys, we have to ask ourselves, could the Akkadian word, Beliah, Beliah, or Lord, also have something to do with Yahweh's name? Now, boys, it's time to break your money out, because I'm about to raise the ante and improve the odds. Because as represented by the popular Jewish expression, and I know I'm not Jewish, and I've said it a hundred times, the term hallelujah, hallelujah, right? Hallelujah, which simply means praise Yah. And using the divine element in it, which is the small little cursive N with a hash mark preceding it, which represents Yah. And it's often used in the Bible as a smaller little shortcut symbol for the whole Yahweh word, for the whole name which is just basically that same symbol repeated twice. And it's first used in Exodus as part of a song in Exodus 15.2. And then it shows up again in Exodus 17.16. And then it's mostly used in Psalms and thereafter, such as Psalm 68.5 and 77.12, nine, 94.7, so on and so forth. There's tons of them. But the particle, represented by this small little N with the hash mark, Yah, it's most often thought of in terms of a diminutive or a smaller sized down name. But it's actually operating as a proper name in these texts. And it's also well known that many Hebrew names also use this divine element, Yah, as a suffix. And occasionally as a prefix, such as Ahaziah, or Beliah, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or Nehemiah so on and so forth. So the proper name, Beliah, is seen in 1 Chronicles 12.5. It clearly stands out and deserves some special attention, as it is the perfect transliteration of the Akkadian Beliah. Now in the Akkadian language, an Akkadian name ending with Yah, or Ia, or Aya, well, it marks the first singular possessive adjective, such as my, or your, or his, or their. Now, as there's no solid explanation for a Hebrew origin of the divine element Yah, this ending more than likely and realistically, it represents the missing link to the origin of the proper name Yah. Then just over a century ago, a Professor Morris Jastrow, he suggested that the name ending with the symbol that represents Yah found in many Hebrew names, are proper names, it does not just systematically represent a divine element, as assumed by many Jewish scholars, but instead it often originates from the Akkadian ending Yah, as what we just talked about. Now, I'd like to give another option here. Instead of this, Bernard Lamborell proposes it's an identification of Babylono-Assyrian Ia, and represents that with the Hebrew Yah, in regards to both as one of the many affirmatives and Semitic substantive that give an emphatic force on the noun to which they are added. Now, while Jastro here refers to the Babylono-Assyrian ending Yah as an, an affirmative substantive, 
instead of a possessive adjective, well, there's no doubt in his mind that the B-E-A-L-I-A-H, Belia in the Bible, it perfectly matches the B-E-L-I-Y-A found in the Armana letters. Now, Jastro analyzes and he classifies well over a hundred Hebrew proper names containing either Yah or Yahu as being either theophoric or non-theophoric. And what he finds is that the vast majority of these proper names are all non-theophoric and therefore should be understood as carrying the Akkadian termination rather than the divine name. Now, while commenting on his experiential classification, he explains this. The obstacle in the way of an entirely satisfactory and complete division lies in the natural confusion that arose between Yah as a formative and as the divine name, and which just as naturally led to slight modifications in the vocalization of the names in order to find in them a suggestion of the deity, and to adapt them to such as contained this name. Jastro then stresses the continuing confusion that has existed between the divine element Yah and the Akkadian ending of Yah. And given all the evidence pointing towards a direct connection between Baal and Yah, Yahweh, and given the quasi-absence of any references to a deity called Yah during the Middle and Late Bronze Ages, well, Lamborell suggests that the divine proper name Yah finds its origin in the Akkadian Beliah. Because the name Beliah combines the two uniquely critical elements of Baal and Yah. And is evidence that the Akkadian Beliah was understood by Hebrew descendants as Baal Yah. Lord Yah, or Master Yah, or even Husband, or Father Yah. So they would have naturally have adopted Yah as the proper name for the divine manifestation for Baal. The divine manifestation for Baal is their deity. Now this definitely helps explain the appearance of the divine element Yah and the theophoric names and also helps explain the confusion surrounding non-theophoric Hebrew proper names, all ending in Yah. Now this confusion, it has existed for a very, very long time in the Hebrew tradition among scholarship. As demonstrated by Jastro, obviously. And it continues to systematically view Yah as a divine element in its proper names. And often in place of the Akkadian possessive adjective. Now, there appears to be even further evidence supporting our claim here, or our hypothesis. Because the name Belial is another Hebrew name that has its etymology deeply, deeply and clearly connected to Beliah, which is B-E-L-I-Y-A, and Balia, B-A-A-L, of course, Y-A-H, and Beliah, B-E-A-L-I-A-H. And its meaning remains somewhat ambiguous as some scholars see it as a proper name, while others see it as an adjective. Now, for example, the word can be broken into two parts. The first one being beli, B-E-L-I, which means without. And then yaal, Y-A-A-L, which means value, without value. 
which proves to be a clever heteronym, meant at concealing the meaning of the word without affecting its vocalization, the way that it sounds coming out of the mouth. But Bernard Lamborel, he also points out that the name Belial, it originates from the Akkadian Belia Ilia, which simply means, my Lord, my God. Or from Belia Ilu, which means, my Lord God. And these are expressions associated with the Pharaoh King God of Egypt, which are also found in the Armada letters. Now put that on your pipe and smoke it, guys. Now certainly the expressions children of Belial, as seen in Deuteronomy 13.13, 13, as well as son of Belial in Judges 19.22, and men of Belial in 1 Samuel 25.25, 25, they all betray an origin. They betray an attachment or even some form of loyalty to an ancient tradition that might have been banned. But thankfully, nevertheless, maintains the remnants of an archaic formula related to the name and title, Baal Yah, Lord Yah. And then we can see the evolution of this, Baal Yah, B-A-A-L-Y-A-H, Lord Yah. And then Belia, the Akkadian, Belia, B-E-L-I-Y-A. And then in the Hebrew, Belia, B-A-A-L-I-A-H. Now the use of the proper name Belia, being the Hebrew form, a B-E-A-L-I-A-H, and its confusion with the expression of Belia, well, offers a very plausible explanation for the origin of the divine proper name Yah. Now I'm left to explain the origin of the last two letters of the Tetragrammaton, the WH, which in Hebrew is represented by the small i and the small n in English. And that would be the WEH, the way, or the WH. Now this is where understanding the concept of syncretism, and the idea that Baal had a consort, comes in handy for us. Because the WE, or the W, is the Hebrew word wave that often stands for the conjunction and, this and that. And the H is the Hebrew letter that looks like the N, which is he, which is often used as a feminine identification, such as the consort of Baal. Asherah would naturally adopt the title Baal Allah, meaning goddess, or mistress, or spouse, the Hebraic feminine form of Baal. Now, scholar and author Mark Smith, well, he provides an extensive list of various compound deities, and they're found in the Ugaritic rituals as well as myths. And we're going to talk about a few of these that are of particular interest to me, and note the presence of the conjunction W, W-E-H, which is and, as in X and Y. And it's characteristic of such a pairing such as, and I'll have to spell these out for you, but it's basically ill w Art, that's I-L with the W that we're talking about. We're talking about that W, then A-T-R-T, which is identified as L and Atherat, or L and Asherah. Then another one that he finds is D-G-N, Way, or W-B-L, which is basically Dagon and Baal. Now, the first one confirms that the compound deity formed of El and Asherah was already attested in Ugaritic long before the Bible writers put pen to paper. Not to mention, 
Ashur was commonly worshipped alongside Baal as well as El. So it seems fair to suggest that the name Yahweh must result from the same type of pairing. Would it not? Now for sure, by extracting the prescribed term, B-L, from the expression, well, that would be written like this, B-L-W-H-W-B-L-H. And it's vocalized as Baal Yahweh Baala, or Lord Yah and Goddess. And therefore, we obtain the tetragrammaton YHWH, the divine name that should not ever be said or pronounced. So, when characterizing the various types of pairing pertaining to the compound deities, well, Mark Smith again emphasizes the role of family relationships as in the divine couple with El and Asherah, or the father and son with Dagon and Baal. And now Smith explains this. The binomial pattern is so common that it's used to denote single deities with two names, as in Cathar, Wahasis, and Nikol, Wa-ib. And in these two cases, the second term characterizes the deity named with the first term. So with that said, taking the pairing of Baal Yahweh Baala, being Lord Yah and his feminine consort, Baala, the feminine form of Baal, being the goddess, resulting in YHWH is in perfect accordance with the El Shaddai, being translated into El Sarai. Remember we talked about, they're spelled nearly exactly the same. And Israel translates easily into I, Sarah, El, using the same form, using the same practice. Now these pairings, they work in both form and function, as Mark Smith just demonstrated for us. And it's important to understand that the Shaddai deity that was worshipped at Shechem, alongside Elbereth and Balbereth, was a female fertility goddess. And it's also important to piece together that Elbereth was the divine manifestation of the Lord, otherwise known as the Baal. And the Shaddai fertility goddess and Baal alongside their divine manifested El. Additionally, the location. Shechem was a city that was very, very close to Jerusalem. Some would say a stone throw away. So guys, I realize I'm laying this on you really, really thick and fairly heavy and probably sticky too. But please don't drift off. Don't get lost in the weeds. Come back to me, guys. Come on back. We're going to keep it. We're going to get slippery again, I promise. But I think the takeaway from the last 10 minutes is just the practice of compound deities of a masculine God and a feminine God put together. So an X and a Y turning into an XY, then ultimately an A. Just, just, just a, a couple symbols that just represent the union between the God and the goddess. And that's what we're coming up with, demonstrating the YHWH and how we actually, that is the shortened version, the truncated version of Baal-Ya with Baliya, Lord Ya, or God Ya, my God Ya, right? With the feminine Baal, Baal-Ya. So that's the only takeaway to get from this last 10 minutes, and we're going to keep on moving forward, and then I'll do kind of a um, little recap.
in addition to the pairing of deities found in Ugaritic text, we could also turn to Israel's neighbor, Egypt, to learn more about this practice. Because when scholar and author Butler discusses the practice of syncretism, we learn that it was not unusual at all for Egyptians to combine two, three, and even four deities into a singular molecular compound deity. And he actually gives us three examples here. Their first one, Amun-Ra, Puta, Sokar, Osiris, Harmachus, Kefri, Ra, Atum. And then he goes on to explain, The most important features of this practice is that, as Hornsnug had explained, it does not mean that the deities in question have fused, equated, or identified. Now, this henotheistic form of worship means that although a new deity is created, the original deities continue to exist on. They don't go away and in their own right, by way of attachment. Or perhaps they get devoured by the new deity and just become part of him or her. But because Canaan was a vassal state and ruled by Egypt at that time, it's highly likely that Akhenaten in the 14th century BCE, the heretic pharaoh who attempted to establish the sun god Ra Horus Aten, a.k.a. Aten, tried to establish as the nation's new super-deity and would have acted as an influencer for a new form of syncretism all throughout every surrounding kingdom and empire, including Israel. And the timing would support such an idea and would actually allow scholars to situate the appearance of the Tetragrammaton YHWH somewhere during or shortly after Akhenaten's reign, 1332 to 1323 BCE. Now this would explain why Yahweh was always depicted using solar iconography, as we discussed in earlier episodes, and why so many authors since Freud have been investigating the possible ties between Moses and Akhenaten. Now, one only needs to compare Psalms 104 in the Bible with Akhenaten's great hymn to the Aten to understand the extent of the possible influences. So I'll let you pull up on your Bible hub or in your Bible, Psalms 104 on your own, but I'm going to read the Pharaoh's hymn to the god Atan, and starting in the middle of the text in order to save some time for us here. How manifold it is what thou hast made! They are hidden from the face of man, O soul God, like whom there is no other. Thou didst create the world according to thy desire, whilst thou wert alone. All men, cattle, and wild beasts, whatever is on earth, going upon its feet, and what is on high, flying with its wings, the countries of Syria and Nubia, and the land of Egypt, thou settest every man in his place. Thou suppliest their necessities. Everyone has food, and his time of life is reckoned. Their tongues are separate in speech, and their natures as well. Their skins are distinguished, as thou distinguishest the foreign peoples. Thou makest the Nile in the underworld. Thou bringest forth as thou desirest. To maintain the people of Egypt, according as thou madest them for thyself, the land of all of them, 
wearing himself with them. The Lord of every land rising for them. The Aton of the day, great of majesty. You are in my heart. There is no other who knows you. Only your son, Nefer Kepfefer, soul one of Ra Akhenaten, whom you might taught your ways and your might. Those on earth come from your hands as you made them. When you have dawned, they live. When you set, they die. You yourself are a lifetime. One lives by you. All eyes are on your beauty until you set. All labor ceases when you rest in the west. When you rise, you stir everyone for the king. Every leg is on the move since you founded the earth. You rouse them for your son who came from your body. The king who lives by Mat, the lord of the two lands, Nefer Kepfer, soul one of Ra. The son of the Ra who lives by Mat, the lord of crowns, Akhenaten, great in his lifetime. And the great queen whom he loves, the lady of the two lands. Nefer, Nefru Atan, Nefer Titi, living forever. Now, when reading the Psalms, Psalms 104, in contrast to Akhenaten's hymn, when put side by side, they read nearly identical. So much so that in his 1958 book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis compared Akhenaten's hymn to the Psalms of the Judeo-Christian canon, and scratching his head, hmm, these look nearly identical. What about that? And even James Henry Brest had noted the similarity to Psalms 104, which he believed, which was what inspired the hymn. While author Wagle compared the two texts side by side, and he commented that, in face of this remarkable similarity, one could hardly doubt that there is a direct connection between the two compositions, and it becomes necessary to ask whether both Akhenaten's hymn and this Hebrew Psalms were derived from a common Syrian source. Or perhaps, Psalms 104 is derived from this Pharaoh's original poem. Both views are admissible. Then we have a Miriam Lectime, and she says that the resemblances are more than likely to be the result of the generic similarity between Egyptian hymns and biblical psalms. A specific literary interdependence is not probable. Then biblical scholar Mark Smith, who is an advocate for more research, and that we're too lazy today in today's biblical scholarship. And he says, Despite enduring support for the comparison of the two texts, enthusiasm for even indirect influence has been tempered in recent decades. In some quarters, the argument for any form of influence is simply rejected outright in today's scholarship. Still, some Egyptologists, such as Jan Asman and Donald Redford, argue for Egyptian influence on both the Armana correspondence, especially in EA 147 and on Psalms 104. Now that's pretty interesting, is it not, guys? Because it clearly demonstrates the influence that the Akkadian Egyptian Empire had over Canaan, had over the Levant, had over the people who would refer to themselves as Israel. 
especially their poets and their authors. Now I want to get back to being a little bit slippery again, be a little bit sticky. And we're going to kind of summarize this stuff and pull you in out of the weeds again, because I know I was losing you a little while ago. But that tetragrammaton, YHWH, it would have been introduced as a contraction or a truncated form of the expression, Baal Yahweh, which is and Baal Allah, being the feminine form of the masculine Baal. And sometime during the late Bronze Age or the early Iron Age period, by the temple priests wanting their sacred text to reflect both the male and female counterparts of their deity, and also wanting to combine the attributes of Baal, Baal Allah, and Baal Barith, just like their Ugaritic and Egyptian neighbors did when combining their deities. But as we will discuss now, the term Baal, the generic term Baal, will eventually become rejected, proscribed, completely obliterated from the sacred text by later temple cult priests as a result of there's simply way too many guys with the name and title of Baal running around and with just as much political power. I mean, if you're going to be identified, guys, as the one and only God of the entire universe, you can't go around having people refer to you with the same name and title as Baal Safan or Baal Malaga or Baal Lebanon, for example. So the high priesthood recognized the problem. Not only removed the term, they completely fucking rejected it, along with anyone else using the divine title of Baal. Now just keep in mind what happened to the temple priests in Samaria. So it really shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the priests of the temple cult, Lord Yah, would have sought to remove the title of Baal from their deity's name. And isn't it telling, though, that whenever Jewish rabbis see the Tetragrammaton YHWH when reading the Torah, they never pronounce Yahweh or Jehovah for that matter. They never say it out aloud. But instead they use other names, such as Adonai, which actually means my master or my lord. The Hebraic expression that perfectly corresponds to the original meaning of the Akkadian Beliah. Now let's make this interesting. Let's raise the ante again. Break out your cash, bros. Because was this original compound deity, initially referred to by the priests and the temple scribes, as Baal Yahweh Baal Allah? Or was the term Baal dropped from the outset in order to create the new contracted form Yah slash We slash H, Y-A-H slash W-E slash H, meaning the Yah as the king's proper name, followed by the conjunction we, which is and, and then the H, to represent the feminine counterpart of the divine relationship. But far from being a new god, Yahweh appears to have been a product of its time. What started out as a polytheistic worship of Israel's distinct deities eventually gave rise to a single compound super-deity, just like what we talked about in Egypt which bore the contracted name of Yahweh. Now, this super-deity would have been exclusive to the Israelites. Nobody else could have him, hence dropping the balls. As it would have combined the unique attributes of all of its chief deities. This would further explain, guys, why Yahweh is systematically referred to 
and associated with LOM. I bet you guys, I bet you motherfuckers said that be right, right before I even said it. LOM, right? Because it is a term that refers to what? Yes, multiple gods. Plurality of deities. Not just one. Now, given the relevance of the covenant, or the berith, if you prefer, in regards to the possession of the land of Israel, it would have naturally been necessary for the priests and the scribes of the temple to ensure historical continuity between Balia, Asherah, and Yahweh. Perhaps this is why the author of Exodus confirms that God was not known by the name Yahweh in Abraham's time. Exodus 6.3 And I appear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name El Shaddai. But my name Yahweh was I not known to them. Now in a more literal reading of this passage, it should read something like this. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty, El Shaddai or more likely, El Sarai. But my name Yahweh, or perhaps Baal Yahweh Baalah, I was not known to them. So by stating that Abraham did not know Yahweh, it then really appears that this author for Exodus is suggesting that he substituted this name from an original appellation that was used for him. Also in Exodus 3, 13-15, when God is answering to Moses, who's asking God, Hey, what name should I call you when I introduce you to the children of Israel? And God responds with this strange-ass puzzling statement that basically says, Aye, Asher, Aye, which is translated into, I am that I am. Kind of like Popeye, right? <laughs> But anyway, so as you can imagine, so as you can imagine, there's been countless speculative and even mystical explanations that have been offered to explain this strange-ass response. But perhaps the authors of the Bible were simply trying to say that although his name had changed, he continues to be the same. I am who I am. And then in Exodus 3.15, we get this. And Elohim said moreover to Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. If you like the storm sound in the background, you can thank Alexa for that. But Exodus 3.15, now let's break it down based upon the knowledge that we have about the word and the term LOM. Exodus 3.15, an LOM, which is plural deities, said moreover to Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Yahweh, the LOM which are multiple gods, and we also learned in 1 Samuel, it also refers to the deceased, the past ancestors, the deceased ancestors. The Elohim of your fathers, so the ghosts of your fathers, 
the Elohim of Abraham, the fathers, the dead ancestors of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. So by identifying the Tetragrammaton with the God of the Patriarchs, well, the priest would naturally have facilitated the adoption of their new super-deity. Now, we still need to talk about how that divine name Yah can be better understood as linguistic confusion that arose from the use of the term Baliah in Akkadian, especially in, in Akkadian diplomatic correspondences as seen in the Armana letters, and how the tetragrammaton YHWH should be understood as a contraction of Baal-Yah, Wei Baal-Allah. Now, as Lamborell points out, this explanation appears sound from a linguistic, a grammatical, contextual, and historical perspective, and it should seriously be considered. As Mark Smith complains that scholarship is just kind of dormant and doesn't want to accept anything outside of what they think they know already. But especially in light of Leader Nim Danley's proposition that we discussed earlier. Now, in perfect accordance to this study and this series, El Shaddai, Israel, and Yahweh would be more than just compound deities integrating the masculine and the feminine qualities of El, Baal, and Asherah. Because these deities would also embody the ancestors or predecessors of Israel as well. Abraham's lord being Baal-Barith, or Baliah, and Sarah as well, Asherah. Now these two powerful individuals would have been elevated to the rank of deity and most likely during the 17th or 16th century BCE. Now, guys, this would explain why by the 14th century BCE in Ugarit, we find them at the head of the Divine Council and associated with the existing gods and goddesses of the Mesopotamian pantheon. So when comparing the Ugaritic and the Mesopotamian pantheons, Recall back how Mark Smith underlined the distinctive household of family model for the former. Because Smith also underlines the similarities that exist between the Ugaritic pantheon and Yahweh's pantheon. What generally remained is a system headed by the chief god, possibly his consort, lesser or subordinate deities, some members of his retinue, astral bodies, and servant messengers. In short, a single assembly with Yahweh as its head is the conceptual unity of Israelite polytheism. Well, at least in my head, that's what Smith sounds like. Hell, I don't even know if he's British, but that's the voice that he gets. I hope you like it. But, <laughs> but because Smith does not consider Yahweh as being a compound deity and bodying all the key features of the established Eucharistic pantheon, being Baal, El, and Asherah, he instead sees discontinuity instead of continuity. And unfortunately, his conclusion is slightly misguided, and he offers up this. Yahweh not only lacks peers within the pantheon, with his genealogy largely erased from biblical record, he becomes a god, not only without peer, but also without precedent. Now, when examining the idea of Sarah's deification, 
A compelling explanation for the organization of the Ugaritic pantheon on the model of a ruling household emerges. And this suggests that Yahweh did not deviate from the old Ugaritic pantheon, but rather he or they simply evolved from it. Because clearly, the divine council is a testament to this deified ruling household of spiritual children of the god El, creator of the entire universe. Now, with lack of any remaining archaeological evidence supporting the exact inscription of B-L-Y-H-W-B-L-H, being Baal, Yah, Wei, Baala, however, this shouldn't be a surprise as the high priests of the cultic temple would have likely sought to destroy any evidence of such a pagan cult in their biblical literature. Now keep in mind, this Baal, Yah, Wei, Baala, these were titles used some thousand years before the biblical writers started writing. Now with that said, we do have a comparable Iron Age inscription for YHWH. T-M-N-W-S-R-T. And what that says is, Yahweh of Teman and his Asherah. Now let that soak in. We also have one that says, B-R-K-T. T-K-M-L-Y-H-W-H-S-M-R-N-W-I-R-S-R-T-H. Now that one reads, I have blessed you by Yahweh of Samaria and his Asherah. Now, I believe these, that these two expressions are enough to substantiate the possible existence of B-L-Y-H-W-B-L-H through a possible tautology. Now, for sure, if the tetragrammaton Y-H-W-H is the contraction of B-L-Y-H-W-B-L-H, B-L-H, then these two inscriptions would suggest that the early Israelites embraced the Tetragrammaton, but also desired to continue worshipping Asherah separately, and in her own right, and all the way up to the 8th and 7th century BCE. Additionally, to further support the deified overlord idea, it may also be found in the perfect solution that it offers in the age-old biblical polemic associated with the polytheistic nature found in Psalms 82 and Deuteronomy 32. In Psalms 82, we get this. Elohim stands among the divine council. He renders judgment among the gods. I have said you are gods, and all of you are sons of El Elyon. But you shall all die like men, and fall like one of the princes. And in Deuteronomy 32, we get this. Is he not your father, your ancestor? He made you and begot you. When El Elyon dispersed the nations, when he scattered the sons of man, he set up the boundaries of the nations in accordance with the number of the sons of Israel. Now, where sons of Israel reads in the Masoretic text used for the King James Version, well, it also reads 
Sons of God, and several other versions, including the Greek Septuagint and LXX, as well as in 4QDEUT, which is Deuteronomy from Cave 4 of Quamran, the manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, Mark Smith considers that the Sons of Israel is more than likely a later redaction also aimed at hiding the polytheistic nature of the older original texts. But why would scribes replace sons of God with sons of Israel instead? Well, from the Ugaritic pantheon of deities, we know that Athrat, or biblical Asherah, well, she had 70 divine sons, as seen in the KTU 1.4.VI.46. We also know that the Sukkot Spring Festival in Numbers 29, 12-32, which is much like the uh, Zucra Festival from Emar, Emar 6, 373, it called for the sacrifice of 70 bulls. And from Genesis 46, Exodus 1, and Deuteronomy 10, we learn that Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, had 70 sons. Now, that can't be by just coincidence, can it? Now let's compare the Ugaritic KTU 1.4 to Genesis 46. In the Ugaritic literature, number 46, we get this. Baal did call his brothers into his mansion, his kinsfolk into the midst of his palace. He did call the 70 sons of Athrat, slash Asherah. And then in Genesis 46, 27, we get this. And the sons of Joseph, which were born from him in Egypt, were two souls. All the souls of the house of Jacob, which came to Egypt, were seventy. So, if the El Elyon, found in Psalms 82 and Deuteronomy 32, are referring to this anthropomorphic figure of the deified ancestor that we're talking about, the deified overlord, then, in quotation, Is he not your father, your progenitor? which is ancestor, and he made you and begot you. These must not only be understood figuratively, guys, but also it was meant to be understood literally. Because in this case, replacing sons of God with sons of Israel proves to be a clever move that does not change the meaning of the text while hiding everything such as the deified nature of Joseph's 70 descendants. Now, in addition, God and Israel, simply put, Israel, are the one and the same deity, Sarah and El, the physical and the spiritual ancestor of the cultic lineage. So this literal and naturalistic interpretation helps us understand why, when the Bible refers to the 70 nations, the 70 sons of Israel, or the 70 gods of the divine assembly, it truly refers to one and the same thing, the original descendants of the divine couple formed by Baal, the deified overlord, and Asherah, the deified Sarah, and that would have been known as Biel. Y-H-W-B-O-L-H, before the B-L component was dropped to form Y-H-W-H. Now, I want to make this a little bit easier for you before we move on. 
because if you're not seeing it visually, you're probably having a hard time catching on to it. So if you have access to like a piece of paper and a pen, you want to write down BL, representing Baal, and then YH, representing Yahweh, and then W, which we learned is and, and then BLH. Now, if you are the temple priest and the scribes, and you remove the Baal elements from the name, so with all those letters we just wrote out being B-L-Y-H-W-B-L-H, removing the B-L from the beginning, that leaves you with Y-H-W. You remove, remove the feminine aspect of Baal, removing the B-L but leaving the H, that leaves you with Y-H-W-H. It is simple as that. And actually, pretty elementary for a scribe trying to remove the Baal epithet from the new super deity's name. But if Baal was such an important deity to the early Israelites, what could have possibly led to his rejection? Now, I already proposed that the title of Baal was dropped and ultimately rejected because of the many Baals that were being worshipped and paid tribute to in their own cults. It's a divine manifestation of Yah and Sarah were to be recognized as truly the one single national god of all of Israel. Then all the others, including the Babylonian Marduk, had to be rejected entirely by the biblical writers of the post-exilic period, 536 BCE, when Baal worship finally seemed to disappear. But there is no doubt that several Baals, which might have included the 70 descendants of Joseph as well, were in fact important deities in Israel as well as Samaria during most, if not of all, the Bronze Age, as well as part of the Iron Age. And there is also very little doubt that the super deity Yahweh remained associated with Baal during the early period of the monarchy, as discussed earlier, when Israelites couldn't differentiate the two. A lot of crossover going on there. But while in Egypt, the cult of the individual deities continued to be celebrated alongside that of a new super-deity. And it seemed that Israel started the repudiation process of its lesser balls in the territory. And perhaps the fact that the name Yahweh did not carry the root Baal contributed to establishing a distance between the two names. But we cannot be certain of this. But we do know is that it would eventually become necessary for theological and political reasons, to dissociate Yahweh from the other balls as far apart as they could, as they were either generic deities or deified royal family members and politicians. Someone with major heavy political power and authority, that is. Now, the Bible offers numerous examples for the desire to get rid of the word Baal, the name and title Baal in Scripture altogether. And as Professor Lester Grabe puts it, considering the biblical polemics against Baal, well, one might have expected not to see such names at all. But there they are, found in surprising context. I think that's what Grabe sounds like. I'm not sure I've never met him either. <laughs> but at least two well-known examples are those found with Eshbal, who is the son of Saul, and Meribal, who is his grandson to Jonathan. And their names still appear with the cultic suffix 
of Baal. And they're found in 1 Chronicles 9.39, 1 Chronicles 9.40, respectively. Now, either the scribes that were translating missed those names, or perhaps still considered the suffix as a title of honor for these Yahwistic names. But also the title Baal, it appears with the suffix Basheth, as seen in 2 Samuel 2.10 and 2 Samuel 4.4. Now in Hebrew, the word Basheth, it means abashed or ashamed, which changes everything. It conveniently changes the theological interpretation from being a title of honor to a title of shame. However, Jastro likes to explain that the Hebrew word basheth should probably actually be pronounced baseth, which would accordingly correspond to an Assyrian batsu, which means possession and possibly even power. But in both cases, unfortunately for Jastro, well, the Hebrew consonants are the same since the Masoretic only introduced the modern Hebraic punctuation for vowels not until like the 7th through the 10th centuries of the Common Era. So it's a bit too late to consider that idea. Now, the Bible also indicates that Yahweh and Baal were also once thought of as one and the same. And the last verse of Hosea's tirade, previously cited, becomes even more telling now. And I'll read it like this. Hosea 2.16 And it shall be in that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me my husband, and shalt call me no more my ball. So what's happening here in this instance? Well, basically we find that Yahweh, the God of the entire universe, is pleading with his consort, pleading with his girlfriend to no longer call him Baal-I. Other words, my ball. But instead, to call him from now on, Ishi which is my husband. Now, this reading is in perfect accordance with archaeological finds, confirming that Asherah was perceived as Yahweh's consort during this period. And by then, many lesser balls were celebrated throughout the land, and it had become important for the priests to stop associating their super-deity Yahweh with all the other pagan gods. And this is why it became necessary to no longer refer to him as Baal. Now that's why it always seems strange that Asherah is hooking up with El, aka Yahweh, and other times Baal. Because Baal was always the same guy. Well, I lie. Baal Barith was the same guy. All the other Baals, like Baal Shaman and Baal Lebedon and Baal Malaga, are all completely other guys. So you see the confusion that uh, a scribe would have here and how Later readers would misinterpret what the authors were trying to say. So isn't it interesting to compare the interpretation of Hosea's tirade with that of Jewish tradition that claims that this passage must be interpreted as a metaphor where Yahweh is actually speaking to the people of Israel rather than a wife or a consort. But then according to this way of thinking, this tradition, well then Yahweh is informing the people of Israel to no longer refer to him as their Lord, which doesn't comport at all. It just makes no sense, especially with the knowledge that we have that the early Israelites did not know the difference between Yahweh and Baal. So then the word Baal should then be understood as meaning husband in this particular instance, I guess, 
So in this Jewish tradition, is Hosea basically saying, Yahweh saith, call me my husband, and no longer call me husband. Well, that doesn't really work either. Now, based on the Jewish tradition of offering an interesting play on words, such as swapping out our Sarah or a Shira or a consort for Israel, well, this interpretation, it lacks a lot of logic. Unless one accepts the idea that the name Israel actually comes from I, Sarah, El. Being Sarah and El with the leading divine I giving divine status. Now, of course, acknowledging that the term Baal, clearly associated with Yahweh in Hosea, refers to a pagan god, would certainly pose a significant ontological challenge in the context of a monotheistic religion that detests paganism and would seem a good enough reason for the Jewish tradition to retain the alternative play on words instead. Now, Noquet, the author and scholar, recently conducted an extensive study on the evolution of the religious ideas of Israel during the first millennium BCE. And he stresses that Hosea was indeed a key witness to this important transitional period. He says, and I quote, Hosea is an implicit witness of this time when the worship of Baal had an official place in Israel and the time when Jehu put an end to its cult in Samaria. Hosea would find himself at the beginning of this movement that differentiates Yahweh from Baal. Until then, considered and accepted as one and the same deity by all the people of Israel. Now, violence and killings of the infidels also contributed heavily to the eradication of Baalism. As you recall in the last episode, we talked about the temple priests of Baal and the parishioners were all murdered in the temple court. They were destroyed. Altars were crushed. The temple was leveled by the Yahwistic army. Now, while still celebrated today as a great and righteous man of God, by, by all my Christian friends, well, the prophet Elijah would be better regarded today as a religious fanatical terrorist because he didn't hesitate one second to revert to the use of extreme violence to forcefully impose the worship of Yahweh over that of Baal, which was then supported by King Ahad. I'm going to begin a quote from 1 Kings 18. Things become even more problematic, however, during the reign of King Ahab in the kingdom of Israel. His Phoenician wife Jezebel introduces Baal worship into her court and attempts a purge of the prophets of Yahweh, who vehemently opposed Baal worship. The struggle reaches its climax in the dramatic struggle between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal for control of the high place at Mount Carmel. Baal's prophets failed to produce a sign that Baal has accepted their sacrifice, while Elijah succeeds powerfully when Yahweh consumes his sacrifice with fire from heaven. Elijah then incites the onlookers to massacre all 450 of the Baal's representatives. Now, Noquet draws important parallels between the condemnation of Baalism and that of the Amrid dynasty, which was sympathetic to the cult of Baal, 
And he says, in terms of the narrative context of the polemics against Baal, the same structure links the controversy against Baal to the rivalry against all forms of royalty submitted to this deity. And then he goes on to show how the prophet Elijah and King Jehu exploited the growing polemics between Yahweh and Baal and to King Jehu's advantage, and he says, The Jehu cycle embodies a panegyric of the coup and of the religious revolution in favor of Yahweh, initiated by the usurper king. It is a discourse of the legitimization of the king and the power exercised by his family over Israel. So by posing as the hero of the fight against Baal and establishing the supremacy of Yahweh over Baal, Jehu justified his overthrowing of King Ahab. Well, folks, that's a wrap for Episode 5, The Unspoken Name. So when we come back, we're going to return and talk about Baal Barith, Baal Zebub, and the Scarab Amulets. Guys, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you in a few weeks' time. And by the time you actually hear this episode, guess what? It's going to be my birthday. That's right. So not only did you hear the birthday show, well, you also heard my birthday. That's right. This coming January 30th, the skeptical ghost heathen turns. I'd love to say 27, but 57 fucking years old. Holy shit, where does time go? Anyway, oy vey, I'll talk to you guys in a few weeks' time. Take care, peace out, be good to each other, and I'll see you guys on Instagram, Twitter, wherever we communicate with each other, right? Love you guys. Ciao. This has been a Skeptical Ghost Heathen production. Coming at you, babe.